Hello and welcome to the Justice and Copy podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. This week I spoke to Jack Wakefield, who's an environmental campaign manager for the charity Tear Fund. Jack, as you may imagine from his job title, is passionate about environmental justice. So much so that he once challenged himself to fit all of the rubbish he produced in one year into a glass jar. And he did it. How is that even possible? Now, anyone who, like me, watched the David Attenborough documentary a few weeks ago on TV called Climate Change, The Facts, or equally, if you've seen any of the Blue Planet series or Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, or basically switched on the TV any time in the last 10 years, might be tempted to feel a little bit worried about the state of our planet. Understatement of the year. The planet is burning. And I don't think I'm being sensationalist to make that statement. When you see on the news the wildfires in Australia and in California caused by global warming, not to mention the melting of the polar ice caps and the widespread flooding, and then there's deforestation and overfishing and ivory poaching, and the list just goes on and on and on. (sighs) Well, you'll be pleased to know that Jack is a lovely guy with a nice, upbeat, positive nature about him. Thank goodness. And in this podcast, he shares with us why he is so driven to do something about it and also gives us a number of ways we can be part of making those necessary changes to save our planet. Listen up. Jack, welcome to the podcast. How are you this this rather blustery Friday afternoon, my friend? Yeah, I am doing well, thank you. Looking forward to the weekend, but doing well. Yeah, that's the thing about Friday afternoons. Your weekends have sort of lost a little bit of their magic. I don't know about you since COVID-19 and working from home, but it is still that Friday afternoon feeling, like the pretense of work, and we can start to consider putting it down, which is which is a joy. So whereabouts are you at the moment? What What's your day look like? Yeah, I'm in um, southwest London at the moment. Um, and um, yeah, I've been sat at my dining table all day writing a few different bits and pieces for work. So I'm a campaigner at Tear Fund. Um, so doing lots of different things, usually around climate change and plastic. Uh, so that's kind of what my days look like today. And days, certainly mornings, are accompanied with a, a strong cup of coffee. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we've got into a bit of a routine, actually, me and my housemates during lockdown. We'll stop at about 11 and all have a cup of coffee, um, usually with like a biscuit or something, and just take a moment together, which is really nice. Um, but yeah, definitely a coffee to get us through the morning. Routines are good. Routines are really good. My life, you could almost set a clock by it at the moment because of the, these new routines I'm, I'm living by, punctuating my days with, like you say, like 11 o'clock coffee and a digestive biscuit. Yeah, we've really followed the clock. I think just to try and give ourselves some order or control over a crazy time. I've worked much more nine to five than I ever have before. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you've got to have a structure at times like these, don't you? Yeah, totally. So this is really interesting. I haven't covered the issue of campaigning on this podcast yet, and I absolutely acknowledge the value in it, but I'm somewhat ignorant to it as well. Um, so I'm really interested to hear a little bit more from you, Jack, about what, what that means and, and the power of campaigning, the power of using your voice and lobbying business and government 
and all that great stuff. But I, I'm always interested to know about the individual as well and, and where, where your journey began, what your first memory of being stirred by issues of injustice, uh, where that memory comes from. So I'd love to, to find that out about you too, Jack. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it starts, I mean, there was loads of little bits along the way, like at primary school, we did a musical about the Amazon and um, that got me a bit bothered by it all. But I, I would say probably my passion for this stuff started when I was at a Christian summer camp and there was someone who actually worked for Tear Fund talking about injustice and poverty um, and it just got under my skin in a way things hadn't before. I think probably because they compared lives of teenagers here and elsewhere in the world. And I just saw the vast difference um, in our lives and thought, this is just so deeply unfair. Mm. And that feeling hasn't really left me since. So that, that's probably where it began, sat on like a grubby carpet at a um, Christian summer camp. <laughs> that sense of unfairness is, is it's a universal... Uh, response to issues of injustice isn't it just uh, whatever lens you can put on it but people recognize what's what's fair and what's not fair and I think we're all made somewhat more sensitive to those issues certain issues than others aren't we it's interesting that that one one spoke out to you why why do you think that was I think I'd never really heard um of the scale of like extreme poverty and injustice before and they they communicated it in a way that like you begun to learn people's stories. There was these two brothers in Malawi, Andrew and I can't remember his brother's name now, but they were farmers in Malawi and um, it, they were finding it harder and harder to grow crops because the, the ground was getting really dry as the rains didn't come when they used to. And so they would dig through all of this dry um, dust essentially to get to some soil where they could grow crops. And just the idea of their lives getting harder and harder when they were pretty tough to begin with and then thinking about what's caused that in the first place um, really stuck with me. Yeah, and hasn't left me alone. <laughs> so how old were you, do you think, when you, when you had this first stirring? Probably 14, I think. Um, so I was at high school and, yeah, like, knew that like, the world was fairly diverse in experience. But, yeah, just the ways that they told those stories and the, the call to be part of responding to it, yeah, really got under my skin. I mean, I'd cast my mind back to, to being 14 and I'm sure there were things that bothered me very early, maybe actual issues of injustice too. But did you know that it was on you to respond in some way? Did you feel a call to action? Yeah, I think so, especially because they, the way that it was talked about made it make total sense that actually as a Christian, this was part of what it meant to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. Because I'd, I'd not really been that excited about church growing up because I thought, oh, well, I'm doing okay. And this God is maybe just like a crutch for those who need it. And then the ways that they were describing this felt like, oh, actually, no, that this God invites you to be part of restoring what's broken in the world. And he's on a mission that you can join in with. And that got me really excited. And was it like big turning point for me of saying, actually, if this is what it's about, I'm excited by this and I want to be part of it. And so it was a big um, moment for me of going, actually, I might own this faith as my own as well. Yeah, you saw a, a practical application of your faith. Yeah, totally. And kind of that hope that all of this wasn't on me to fix, but I could join in with a God who was at work, then got me really excited to respond along with others.
Yeah. So what what did that look like? Did you did you immediately come home and start selling off your parents for bringing microwavable meals into the house or overusing plastic or wasting water? <laughs> I mean, that's not far off. Um, we took part in um, a carbon fast, which was kind of like over the period of Lent where they encourage you to reduce your pollution. And so I put stickers all over the house of like, turn the thermostat down or can you cycle instead of drive? They were very gracious, like their house was covered in stickers. And then at school, I convinced some of the teachers to give me a spare, uh, it was basically a storeroom and turn it into um, like an activist and prayer hub. And we had like loads of resources out for people to pray and sign petitions. And I like ran around the school carrying a loo seat that everyone was signing that we then posted to our MP to like help people get access to water and sanitation. Yeah. So it very quickly became quite like an obsession. I really applaud that because I remember as a teenager, I was petrified of doing anything that would have brought a bit of attention to me in regards to people teasing or, or I don't know, calling me a weirdo or whatever. I just wanted to get, sort of keep my head down, get through school. Like I imagine most teenagers feel pretty insecure underneath it all. How did you, how did you manage to resist that temptation to say nothing or at least do it very quietly and actually make it a, a huge facet of your character? It's a great question. I don't know. I guess it was it was just escalating what was all like I already felt I was doing and the person I wanted to be. So like we studied fair trade in RE and so we helped to organise a fair trade fortnight and then I just utterly threw myself in and was like well this is part of what we're doing so I'm gonna fully embrace this and um, organise a bunch of events. So I think I don't I don't know why it didn't really bother me of being like this person who really cared about it. Yeah, just kept on wanting to do more about it. And people seemed to join in. No one really objected to the idea that this stuff mattered. So that was good. For you, Jack, that's awesome. Did you carry, I, mean, I imagine you did carry that momentum into college and, and university. Did it inform your choices in study? or? Yeah, so I'd grown up really wanting to be a doctor. Um, well, after wanting to be an astronaut, and then moved on to wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> Um, there probably aren't that many little boys who don't want to be an astronaut I think yeah they wanted to be a doctor and so that was kind of what I was studying for because once you pick medicine you're like okay this is going to take all of my effort but I took a year out um, after A-levels and just took some time to really think what I was passionate about and realised that this stuff of global poverty and injustice and climate change were really mattered to me like the idea of being a doctor and helping people felt important but actually what I deeply cared about was those big like systemic injustices and so totally changed direction ended up applying for theology to grapple with what it would look like for the church to respond to this stuff um yeah and then yeah I've carried on going down that line for quite a while. How long after university did you start working Fund. I mean, I'm looking at you on our Zoom call and you're definitely younger than me, but I, I haven't got a gauge on your age yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually ended up working for Tear Fund not too long after uni. So I'd been volunteering and doing all sorts of stuff with Tear Fund since I was like 15 and had met people who worked there. And so I did a bit of work experience with them while I was at school and then got a job there. Um, kind of doing administrative stuff before Christmas of the year that I graduated. Yeah, so not too long. So I did a whole bunch of random little jobs 
between graduating, working out what on earth I was doing with my life and then landing an admin job at Tier Fund. And I've been there for almost four years now. Nice. Yeah. And I've heard some rumours about you, Jack. I've heard uh, some rather radical steps you've taken in your, in your pursuit of this issue, in your commitment to this issue. One of them involved you collecting your... I, want, I don't want to use the word waste because that's immediately going to turn people off. But um, uh, refuse is almost as bad. I mean, how, how, how do I describe what you did for a year? Yeah, so last year I took on a challenge of collecting all of my like landfill rubbish to see how much I could reduce it. So I have a mason jar that's, um, how can you describe it on a podcast, maybe 30 centimetres tall, full of all of the landfill waste that I created last year. So it's actually me and my fiance who took on the challenge and then we combined all of our rubbish into that jar um, for the year. So everything that we ate, everything we used, like to wash or to clothe ourselves or anything like the whole all of our landfill rubbish in that jar and um, was the challenge it was good fun it was hard work though a year is quite a long time so that wasn't just your that's yours and your partners as well yeah yeah so we both took it on and then shared the jar that is absolutely remarkable that you've managed to to achieve that i would dread to think what my equivalent would be did you and what were people's response to this at the beginning of the year i think people thought we were a bit mad um they were like oh that's a really nice idea but we'll see how you're doing in march and then as the year went on i mean as the year went on i was getting pretty desperate like it required a lot of leaning on top of the jar to get it to close uh, by the end of the year yeah people i think as the year went on people were like quite shocked that we actually managed to do it but it had been a bit of a process, really, because I'd first tried to start reducing my rubbish back in 2015. So I took on, there's a challenge called Plastic Free July, where the idea is you don't use any plastic in July. Um, I failed that challenge on the 2nd of July, <laughs> uh, so that didn't go very well. And then um, in October, there's a week called Zero Waste Week. So I convinced my family that we would take part. And that I would do all the cooking for them during the week if I was going to do all this uh, strange shopping. And um, they were amazed by how much we reduced our rubbish just in a week. So we actually managed to fill the same jar um, in a week. But we were the kind of family that would have like loads of bin bags um, every week, piling them up outside the house. And so it was a big shift for us. And they, because it was so visibly different, um, they were then like, oh, this is something that we could keep doing. Like there's loads of this that we just can build new habits around. And um, I'd say probably in 2018, they were better at it than I was, which then prompted me to go, okay, I'm going to try this really seriously now. And what, so you mentioned habits. What, what are the, give us some examples of what those habits are that, that help you, that aid you in reducing your waste. Yeah. So I think it's finding the right places to buy stuff. So for example, um, there's loads of zero waste shops all over the country and the world now um, where you can buy rice and pasta and dried goods in bulk, like out of packaging in your own containers. So that really helps. But I didn't really know they existed until I took on the challenge. And then just thinking really consciously whenever you're buying things, of where will this end up? How can I get rid of it? And is there a better way of buying it? Of actually like mindfully purchasing stuff and saying, oh, can I do this in a better way? I think one of the hardest habits has been learning to say I can't have something 
especially as millennial, I feel like I can have whatever I want as long as I can afford it or eventually pay it off. I, I can have whatever I want. And actually taking on this challenge meant I had to learn there are some things like crisps, for example, that there just wasn't a way of getting. And so I think there's two or three packets of crisps where I was just really desperate for some sweet chili crisps. Um, but other than that, there was none. Um, and I just had to accept that that was not on the menu anymore. So yeah, learning to say no to stuff and set those limits was a big, I think, bit of a culture shift for me. It's funny, you need, I think, to demonstrate self-control, you need a reason, don't you? You know, like people sometimes have that incredible New Year's resolutions and they fail so early on because that, that motivation is just not strong enough. But it's, it's certainly impressive that, that you and your family and hopefully lots of other people too are, are motivated enough about this issue. And absolutely, I mean, they absolutely should be to, to start making these what, what feels at the time like a sacrifice. I mean, I flipping love sweet chili crisps. And, uh, and so I feel, your, I feel your pain. I wonder, if you could, um, I wonder if you could describe just for those people listening that don't have a pre-existing knowledge or particularly deep knowledge on this topic, a little bit about landfill, um, you know, where, where most of our waste goes to and obviously what, what harm that causes. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, so much of our rubbish ends up going to landfill. Um, we separate out all sorts of stuff for recycling and hope that it goes to the right place. But um, time and again, you'll see documentaries on TV where they just find loads of our recycling that's been exported to poorer countries around the world and then just piling up in huge, dangerous mountains of waste. But even, yeah, I think a big problem with landfill is that we just create excessive amounts of waste. And then when we put it in the bin, we think it's just gone and we never have to worry about it again. We're, what we're seeing is that waste is just growing and growing. So in the next 10 to 15 years, we're probably going to see plastic production double. In sub-Saharan Africa, we're probably going to see waste triple by 2050. So this is like an escalating problem. And so much of that rubbish just gets dumped. Yeah, in the UK, we have landfills that are kind of like sealed containers and we'll extract the methane out of the top and it very gradually breaks down. But then um, all around the world, you'll see just waste piled up. There's two billion people that don't have any kind of solid waste collection. And so for them, all of this waste gets dumped on the streets or in a waterway and becomes breeding ground for disease and sickness um, or causes flooding. So it's a huge problem. And at Tear Fund, one of the things, because Tear Fund is a development charity, we're passionate about seeing an end to extreme poverty. And so the big thing about plastic for us is the huge impact it has on people. And about every 30 seconds, um, the UK throws away two busloads of plastic. And in that same time, about one person dies from diseases caused by plastic waste around the world. So it's like a huge human issue. Like we often just think of marine life. But actually, we're seeing so many people die because of all of this waste. Yeah, that is a horrible statistic. I, I have a flat in South London and uh, it's on a high street and every... You know, the advantage of that is I don't have to walk very far to, to the shops and, and the, the train station. But I, we have to put our bins out by the, on the street bins. 
and there is a recycling bin and a non-recycling bin. And this infuriates me, right? So all week long, I store up my dry recycling, whatever it is, you know, cereal boxes on, take it out, go down there, place it into the um, recycling bin. And I still do it, even though very early into my um, tenure at this apartment, I looked out to see the bin men turn up, empty the bag of rubbish into the, the, the bin, then take out the recycling and enter it into the, the same thing. They literally put them in the same, you know, it's like, why am I doing this? And yet I persist. But surely, like, does that get sorted? Or is it just that that particular part of London doesn't subscribe to the issue of recycling? Yeah, it is mad, isn't it? I mean, every council is different, which makes recycling really hard because every different council area that you're in, there'll be different things that they will or won't take and they want it sorted in different ways. And there are some companies, so for my my council, for example, they pay for uh, the bins to be sorted after they've been collected to try and get the most out. But that's not the case everywhere. But yeah, it is mad. But I think the thing with recycling is it's we've been sold it as a solution that actually, like it's okay to to create waste if we just recycle it well but actually plastic doesn't recycle very well at all it kind of gets downgraded each time so you might see that i don't know you'll see some packaging that said like i used to be a tire or something and and it's much softer less durable plastic after it's been recycled and so there's a limit to how much we can recycle plastic it keeps on getting downgraded if recycling's and, not the solution what is i mean it it's pretty simple in a way it's reducing how much waste we create in the first place and so that's partly why i wanted to take on the challenge of seeing like how much could i really reduce this down if we were fully committed to this challenge what would it look like um and we managed to get a long way but it was really hard and we had the privilege of not having a family to look after we could commit a fair amount of energy to working out how we were going to do our shopping and everything else and so like the challenge is pretty impossible for a lot of people. And so, yeah, the big challenge is reducing, but that has to sit with companies to say, actually, you need to reduce this waste because as hard as we try, if everything arrives in plastic, we're going to buy it. And so companies need to think really seriously, how can they get rid of it at the source? It's tough, isn't it? Whilst you're talking, I'm thinking in my immediate future, I've got my brother coming down to stay for the weekend. My niece, his daughter is turning five. I, I haven't bought her a present yet. So I need to do a last minute present shop. And I know what I, I will buy some plastic doll uh, for a little five-year-old girl because I have a lack of imagination and it will go next to the other 200 little plastic dolls that she has and yeah, it's, it's a massive problem, isn't it? I think you mentioned that it's on organisations. I, I imagine it's on all of us, isn't it? I mean, um, I will make a tiny, tiny impact on this huge global issue by changing, but if we all did, that would be a mounting impact, but also these huge producers of plastic waste. Like we need to get that to shift and change. Have you seen, I mean, I'm thinking of, looking for signs of progress, I'm thinking of like, was it how many years ago now when we suddenly decided that carrier bags and shops were, you had to pay for them? And has that been an effect? Yeah, it's been a few years. Yeah, we saw a massive drop in people using plastic bags. Like, it was a really effective thing. Like, for some reason, none of us wanted to pay like 5p. It felt like it was going to break the bank. <laughs> it did a really good job to shift people's approach. But then what we saw is people were just buying more and more um, bags for life 
and just buying those each week. And so uh, I think it was last week, Morrison said they're going to get rid of the bag for life because it's just become the new carrier bag. But we did see a big shift. But yeah, you're right. Like when you're in a hurry you just and you need to get something quickly, it's going to be in plastic. And so it's on the companies to say, okay, we, like, we'll take responsibility for this and give you options that are easy to find that aren't covered in plastic that will just get dumped. Name and shame. Got some heroes, got some villains in this piece. <laughs> um, so at Tier Fund, we've been working on plastic for a few years um, and big issues of waste. And in the last couple of years, we've been campaigning uh, to four of the world's biggest plastic polluters. So Unilever, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and who have I missed? Unilever, Nestle, Pepsi, and yeah, Pepsi, Coke, Unilever and Nestle. Blimey, that was harder than it should have been. Um, so four of the world's biggest plastic polluters um, and calling on them to reduce their waste because they all sell stuff here. Like their brands will be really familiar to all of us, but um, we're probably all their customers. Um, but they also sell loads of plastic in developing countries as well. And some of them are planning their growth based on the idea that they'll just sell more and more like single-use sachets in poor communities where there is no way, safe way of disposing of the rubbish. And so we said this is a big problem and responsibility sits with businesses, with governments as well, and obviously with each of us to make decisions where we can, but so much of it with the companies who produce the rubbish in the first place. And we've seen a mixture of progress. Unilever have um, made the most progress. They committed actually to have uh, the amount of new plastic they make by 2025, which is a pretty ambitious goal. Say, we're taking this seriously and we want to reduce how much new plastic we make. We saw Nestle become a bit more transparent. They shared how much plastic they produce, um, which we didn't know before. And they've committed to work with waste pickers who do recycling and waste management in poorer countries. And so we've seen bits of progress from different people. But if you want to name and shame, Coca-Cola are definitely the worst. I mean, they are officially the world's worst plastic polluter. Like that's based on evidence of waste surveys all around the globe. And they will, I mean, I still see their adverts because since coronavirus, adverts haven't been changing on the trains. And so there's still all these posters of um, we do recycling and we love the planet and Coca-Cola. But they are the world's worst plastic polluter and they were definitely the least willing to engage in this conversation. What can we do? What can we do about that? It's beyond boycott their product and, uh, and buy Pepsi instead or roller cola or, or some, some chief alternative, which is probably just as awful. Um, no, what, what, how do we take that piece of information you've just shared? How do I respond to that? Yeah, I think it's important, isn't it? We, we can often think of boycotting for companies where you're like, oh, okay, I just won't buy that from that shop. But when it's brands like Coke and Unilever and Nestle and PepsiCo, they own so much of what we'll see on the shelves, what we eat every day. Um, you can't really successfully boycott them. And they're so massive that if just one of us decided, oh, I'm not going to buy it, I don't know how much impact it would have. But one of the really important things to remember is that we do have a lot of influence as people and we often overlook that. We'll see ourselves as consumers and we'll try and influence things as consumers, but we have a lot of power as citizens. And if, yes, like speaking up and pushing for change together can be really impactful. Um, so one thing we were doing was we had a petition and loads of people were signing this petition, calling on the companies to reduce their waste. And that gave, opened up space for us to have meetings with the companies, present some of our research and 
suggestions and uh, for those companies that were less keen to engage we started exploring other ways of engaging so with coca-cola for example we encouraged thousands of people to write messages in in a bottle so you'd like write a message to coca-cola asking them to be less rubbish and then shove it inside a coca-cola bottle and post it to their hq and it was brilliantly effective because they then wanted to meet with us because they were getting all of these messages in a bottle and we did another uh, one to get attention of pepsi and coke and set up a way for people to email their ceos and so they got spammed with like four thousand emails in their inbox and together we were really able to push for that change like the thing i said about unilever wouldn't have happened if people weren't calling for this together they they didn't know tier fund they're like we're small fry compared to unilever but because tens of thousands of us were all saying it together it created space for them to act and i think if you look at things like um plastics it's important to remember times like when blue planet was on tv and um we saw that all of a sudden there was lots of people posting on social media like oh i don't want plastic straws and plastic is bad i've seen the poorly turtle that kind of thing and businesses responded pretty quickly like that was the the age where suddenly you covered restaurants in paper straws and there was a commitment to getting rid of plastic and they shifted really quickly because they saw public attitudes changed and i think we forget that we have that level of influence that as society if we speak up together we can shift those attitudes and we can say actually we don't want to accept this anymore um, and businesses and government will follow i think that's huge i think that's absolutely huge i remember a few years ago watching the super bowl um and you know obviously biggest one of the biggest television events of the year most expensive advertising rights and i noticed that every major company that had bought that advertising space was trying to approach the same, use the same angle of, hey, we, for every car that we make, we teach a disabled driver how to drive. With every tree we rip down, we plant 10 more. With everybody who's trying to affect a message that we're doing the world good, we're conscientious about the way we trade. And these, I mean, most of it's not, but, but it was a positive sign because a few years before that, not any concern to them to try and demonstrate this commitment to ethics so i think there are positive signs but it's jack you're the expert it's not enough is it we're not anywhere near on the right trajectory yeah you're right i think like there's a lot of debate over like we call this greenwashing where a company will say that it's ethical and it cares for the planet but doesn't really do anything else about it And there are mixed feelings about whether this is good news or bad news. I think I fall on the side that it's good news, like you were saying, because a few years ago, companies wouldn't have even bothered to try and say this, whereas now they know there's pressure on them to do something about it. So we've had this massive Black Lives Matter moment during lockdown, and we've seen companies posting it and saying that they care about racial injustice and they want to see equality. They wouldn't have done that had we not all been speaking up and calling for this together. But it's not enough to just let them stop there. And I think we have to be wise as consumers to not just go, oh, this company's great. They said they care about this. Actually just do a little bit of digging and hold them accountable for what they say as well. I think these greenwashing commitments are kind of an opportunity for companies to shoot themselves in the foot. Because we can go back and say, but you say you care about this. You say this is part of the values of who you are as a company. And they set themselves up to be challenged about why they're not meeting their own standards. So yeah, we're definitely not on the right trajectory, but I think it's a good sign that they are at least conscious of saying we need to say something right now. Can I be 
hashtag transparent. I need to get this off my chest. I'm having this conversation and I feel compelled to reveal the fact that at the moment, my coffee bags are non-recyclable and I say my, ours, uh, at Blue Bear and, and it really bothers me. So we had an opportunity, a very kind um, coffee bag producer donated us a run of printed bags that were fully compostable. And I thought this is brilliant. So uh, 500 bags, something like that. At the end of that run, I went back to them and said, I want to buy some more, but I couldn't because they'd stopped running them. The reason they stopped running them is because they were very hard to print on. And the 500 bags I got, I'm, I'm realized now I'm going to have to take the name that I've just used out of this, but I can, I can bleep it or something. The, the, but what had happened is a third of the bags that I got, uh, so what I got given was a third of what they produced, two thirds of which they ch chucked away because they weren't uh, legible. And because of the, this, this material. And so actually, to, what I thought was doing a great deal of good, actually creating waste, right? Albeit compostable waste, but it was creating waste. It was extremely inefficient. So they've paused production on those until they can you know, affect that inefficiency. So I want to return. I'm committed that Blue Bear is, is, is achieving this. But there's also an issue of affordability. The cost of the bag is so much so that it would actually wipe out any profit. And of course, the objective is to raise money to support organizations. So it's one of those really difficult difficult things how you can be fully committed to to these issues not doing harm in any which way it becomes really really challenging i want it to be the case i'm desperate for it to be the case but of course you can't lose money on every coffee bag that's that's not going to ever work so now i'm glad i've got that off my off my chest whether or not we keep it in the podcast i'm not sure but um, there it is it's it's out there <laughs> Yeah, and I think like that shows again, doesn't it, how hard this is to do as individuals and as small businesses that actually like the the brokenness of this is all baked into the system that we're in and we need to to challenge it collectively and say, actually we want something much better. And we're not gonna get that overnight. It's gonna take us a while to push for it. In uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, she talks about how change is slow and that we need to keep on pushing for it, uh, but we also need patience and we have to hold that with tension of the urgency of these problems. But yeah, we're not going to fix it overnight, but we need to keep on, keep on pushing for it and calling for it and acting whenever and which way we can. Bear with me on this one, because this is a bit, bit left field, but I watched a film the other day, a classic film called Deep Impact. Have you seen it before? No. Ugh, it's a classic, Jack. You've got to watch this. I think it's on Netflix, and it's about this asteroid that's heading towards Earth. And if it were to collide with Earth, did you, did you just make a note of it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it would have been a life-ending scenario, like humanity-ending scenario. And they send these people onto the, in, in, a, in a space shuttle up to this asteroid to connect with it and try and blow it up. But the idea is, is the world is facing extinction. And, and it, it, it does a very good job of making you think, what would you do in that scenario? And this life-altering period that we're currently going for that is COVID-19. All right, a bit of a stretch to say them two are comparable, but there are certain echoes of this sense of reducing your life to what matters and what's important. And, and we are in a situation where there's an asteroid heading towards this planet at breakneck speed, and that is climate change. And all the evidence is there. And the worst point of that is it's man-made. It's not, you know, an act of God that there's an asteroid heading to it. it. We are creating this. We are setting fire to our own planet. And, and the evidence is so compelling. It's, it's undeniable. So 
you know what we've got so much to do haven't we and i just feel that that sense of urgency is is still absent would you agree yeah i think it's really hard isn't it when you look at the the evidence of what we're facing so i mean very simply all of the world scientists say that we need to try and keep warming within 1.5 degrees that they beyond that we'll see dangerous feedback loops and we'll see um, hundreds of millions of people struggling to get water and really 1.5 is as safe as we can get it we've already warmed by 1.1 degrees and we're on track for about three and to get back on track we probably need to reduce our emissions about 15 percent every single year from now on and if we think about our recent lockdown where we've talked about nature recovering and resting i think that was about a seven percent reduction in emissions so i mean that gives us some kind of sense of how vast the scale of changes that we need every single year from now on it's a huge challenge but when you think about the evidence the impacts that we're already seeing around the world right now there's those huge fires in california and you see all of that and then you look at the world and the attitudes of governments all around the world and you think have you not noticed like it's almost you know when you've like lost someone and you're grieving and then you go outside and everyone's just carrying on their normal life and you're like how can you live like how can you walk around like this like i'm suffering and grieving so much it's almost like that with the planet of saying how are we still just walking around and carrying on like normal and it is bizarre so i think yeah you are right we've we are not engaging with the urgency that we need to and it it just feels mad that we're not all the evidence is there like you say i i wonder whether you think there is a potential opportunity what with what we're currently experiencing as we pause as we reflect as we take stock of the state of the planet and recognize these environmental changes as we all slow down to is there an opportunity to take this and use it as a springboard into into a more accelerated rate of change in the way we we treat the environment yeah i definitely think there is i mean the ways that governments decide to reboot our economies after this will determine what our society and economy and environment look like for decades to come like we put so much on pause and how we decide to restart that will make a huge difference right now is the moment to say okay we're going to pedestrianize these streets because they haven't had many cars on recently and to say okay what is our new relationship with air travel going to be and can we live in a smaller world i've really loved actually having my world shrink during this time and really getting to know my neighbors i mean there's been a huge amount of loss to that as well but there's been something special about getting to know those who are immediately around me and I think, yeah, it's a challenge for all of us to say, okay, what are we going to do in this new world? Like what new normals are we going to choose? Um, and there's a real requirement on governments to say, how are you going to do this in a way that engages with the crises that we face? And I mean, if anything was going to make us think that, it should be the crisis that we're in. Not many people have been saying it, but coronavirus wasn't just like an accident or a freak of nature. Uh, pandemics like that, are far more likely because of deforestation and unsustainable agriculture and animal trafficking, all things that we do ourselves. And so if we ever needed a wake up call for the way we've broken the environment, COVID-19 should really be it. Um, so yeah, we have a huge chance now. And I think part of the task, there's the urgency that we've talked about. But part of the task is to say, actually, what, what is this world that we're going to imagine together? What will it look like and feel like to be in a world that 
lives in harmony with the environment that we're in and and is a more equal and fair society. There's a book by an economist called The Economics of Arrival of saying, why don't we accept that we've now arrived at comfort? We've got all that we need. And actually the striving that we continue with is just hurting us. We're moving into a mental health crisis and air pollution. Let's accept that we've arrived and find a, a slower, more content way of life together. I think now is our moment to imagine what that would look like. I mean, you put that really, really articulately. I thought when you mentioned that the, the link between COVID-19 and global warming and deforestation and the way we treat the planet is interesting because I see the same link between the issue of human trafficking. And I don't think people always imagine the issues of environmental justice in the same light as the injustice of something like human trafficking. But I do. Um, uh, but also, I think they're incredibly linked, like most of the problems of the world, they are, they are linked. And the climate change is one of the biggest drivers of human trafficking. As we see communities flooded out of their homes, I mean, Bangladesh is, is you know, two thirds of it underwater at the moment. And communities uh, are losing their homes, which means mass migration and mass vulnerability. People are vulnerable, they're desperate, they're displaced, and they step into situations of human trafficking. They become extremely uh, easily exploited. The link is not a hard one to make. So I think, I think it, is, it is important, some would argue, it, it is the issue of our time uh, to pay attention to it. Everything else is just rearranging furniture on the Titanic, you know? Uh, but is there any sort, of, any sort of collective movement that is representing what we've just discussed sort of post COVID-19, like how do we build our country back better? Yeah, so there is a big coalition called Build Back Better, which brings together trade unions and activists and um, economists and all sorts of others together um, with ordinary people in their town saying, actually, we want, we want to build back better and have something where the world is fairer and more just and more green. And there's loads of ways to get involved with that. I just saw there's a, a Build Back Better group in Taunton in Somerset, and they've been outside their mayor's office. And there's a group in Oxford who've run like a street fair of how the world could be. So there's that coalition. And the Climate Coalition, which is a big coalition of lots of NGOs and environmental groups, are launching a joint uh, campaign in September as well, calling on the government to do just this. They're saying reboot in line with. Uh, what we need to do for um, inequality and the environment. How can we build back in a way that cares for the people and the world around us? So there's loads of ways to join in with both of those. I'd encourage you to go and check both of them out. Brilliant. I was going to ask for, for that, for a call to action, and, and you've given it to me there, but maybe we could flesh that out a bit. But before we do, I wonder if you could tell me, I mean, we've talked the frustrating reality of, of the world, but I wonder what gives you hope, Jack, for the future? Mm, it's a nice question. I think part of what gives me hope and keeps me going is my faith, like believing that there is a God who, who hears the cries of those who are suffering, who knows it way better than I do, and who is at work gives me real hope. And I think also seeing more and more people engage with this, with courage to break with the status quo and to speak up in ways that are costly and challenging gives me hope as well. As more and more of us say, actually, the status quo of where we're at is not acceptable and stand up with courage. I think we'll see rapid change happen. Fantastic. 
so just in closing jack if you have any other any suggestions you could lead us into any any obvious responses you mentioned the campaign build back better what else is there anything at tier fund we can support or are there more obvious personal ways we can we can change our habits what could you leave us with yeah so i mean if people want to join in with this kind of conversation with tier fund um then we're running a campaign called the reboot campaign all about these topics and there's ways to join in with that through the way that we live and speaking up to government and through prayer if that's your thing um so do check that out the reboot campaign at tier fund but i'd encourage people to think like what are some of the changes that we can make ourselves thinking of new habits of reducing our waste or our carbon footprint but also saying actually how can i use my voice like this is what's going to create change at the pace that we need so how can i say to the businesses that i shop with what are you doing about fair trade and trafficking how are you making sure that your supply chains are sustainable and of challenging our local representatives as well. Can our council declare a climate emergency? Has our MP pushed for anything um, that matters on these environmental issues recently? And of using our voice and keeping using yeah. it as well. Brilliant. I really, really sincerely enjoyed this, this chat, Jack. So thanks so much for giving me an hour of your time on a Friday afternoon. It certainly left me whew, quite a lot to think about. So thank you, mate. No worries, it's been great to join you. So how do you feel after hearing that? Challenged? Guilty? Frustrated? Angry? Impassioned? All of the above? There is a scary amount of ambivalence towards climate change, isn't there? I don't know why, but there is. I far prefer to categorise myself as an optimist than as a pessimist. But the way things are looking, well, it ain't great, is it? Wasn't it interesting the way Jack described the link between COVID-19 and the man-made consequences of our casual mistreatment of this planet? Campaigning on such matters isn't a job for just Jack and people of his ilk. Thank goodness they exist. But it is a job for all of us, isn't it? We have to seize this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build back better. You can find out more about Tier Fund by going to their website, www.tierfund.org. Remember, they're running the Reboot campaign. Why not get behind that? Have a think about other ways you can use your influence to bring about the massive changes this country, indeed this world, needs to make. I certainly feel that my Tesco's reusable carrier bag isn't quite enough, is it? Well, I certainly won't be buying any more bottles of Coca-Cola. Take that, Coca-Cola. This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. We exist to fight slavery through coffee. And you can find out more about us at our website, bluebearcoffee.com. And follow us at Blue Bear Coffee Co. on social media. Give us a shout. Let us know what you think of the podcast. If you have any comments or feedback or suggestions, I'd love to hear it. Thanks for listening. Peace.